Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is live, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. Now on to the show. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 148. Today is a bit of a roundtable with the gang that's back together again. I got I got the uh, great and powerful Regina Nargis. How are you? I'm just great. Sweet. And then everyone's favorite guy, Aaron Fennell. How are you, sir? Good. What's going on, man? Oh, just watching it, uh, watching ice balls fall from the sky here. The last couple for the last ten hours, it feels like it's all around us. So that was a uh, right here where I'm out here, Scotts Bluff. We had a uh, we had a ten hour period. We had a golf ball sized hailstorm come through in about uh, about two thirty or so on Thursday, and um, at about. 1.30 in the morning on Friday, had another golf ball size hell episode come through. So there's a uh, significant amount of damage uh, where you're at. And I was on the lighter side of that in my particular area. Um, there was some baseball size hail and all around uh, Scotts Bluff. And I think the further north you went, in the afternoon anyway, the uh, worse it got. So I guess, uh, Gina, what was your experience with that? And did you guys have some... some uh, damage down your farm any from these storms that have come through here of late? Um, we got skipped all together, actually, which is crazy because we're, we don't live that far apart. Um, but at this point, we could really use a rain. But with the last couple storms that have come through, I'm kind of glad, I guess, we haven't gotten that stuff. Yeah, it has been unrelenting. Yeah, the rain that you would have got also would have came with some ice balls. So I don't know how, much, how well that would have yeah. worked. So, I'm kind of uh, glad I don't don't have to see that. Yeah, that's that's a good thing. All right, Aaron. So you did your did the uh, the hair on the sheep bounce the, bounce the elbows off of that, or or what's the uh, what's the story? <laughs> well, I don't know because it's held here like one thirty in the morning. And we got absolutely piss-pounded here west of Alliance. And it doesn't go very far east. It doesn't go very far north. But in this strip from about two miles west of Alliance all the way to Alliance, just a little bit east, just absolutely hammered. And it was... You could light firecrackers in my room and I'm not going to wake up. And I bounced out of bed last night because I thought, holy shit, what is going on? Yeah. And went and ran and looked out the front door and it was like, holy shit, just unreal how much hail was coming. Small stuff, but just tons of it. We had little, you know, drifts up against the house and stuff. Even on the west side of the house where the sun, you know, shines for three-fourths of the day, there's still, by the one garage, there's still a little bitty hail drift there. Yeah. And I got, buddy of mine's got a pivot off across the road, and you can, it's just almost burnt. It's just a 
violated it. And everybody's torn, you know, from here to town. It's just green broom handles. That's it. It's just, it sucks. As far as the sheep, I don't know. They're all alive this afternoon. So there you go. <laughs> awesome. <clears throat> awesome. So, well, there's plenty of stuff going on. There's, there's a, it's been a bit of a, a back and forth week for the most part here. If you take a look at, well, we've seen the markets, you know, we had that big report come out Monday that um, was way, way more bearish than what I think people thought. Um, I don't know that I, the USDA did much, um, any favors to anyone, I guess, best way to put it. They, they counted a lot of, I mean, I get what they did when they counted the number of acres planted, which which was about 91 million is what they said. Um, but, you know, most, uh, about 10 million of those 91 million acres were, pe- were prevent plant, and none of that stuff's going to make it to, uh, make it to harvest other than maybe some silage that maybe come from it. Um, so I guess there's, again, I got a real issue with that. Even the number they put out for uh, projected harvested acres was still uh, still high if you just do the simple math of, of what they're putting out there. So I don't know. Here of late, the USDA to me seems like they've been doing a lot of uh, a lot of trouble uh, to the to the growers out there when you start looking at price. So I guess Gina, you talk about that a little bit and, and tell me what your opinion of that is. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously the USDA has been a hot topic this year, and, you know, it's, it's been kind of good because for myself and our operation, I think we've all probably learned a lot more as to what really goes into those acreage reports and what they actually count in those numbers. Um, you know, the USDA is just doing their job, right. but is it helping the market? Absolutely not. And unfortunately, you know, there's speculators and traders that are the reason why we have the markets we do, and not all of them completely understand where that USDA is getting that number, and they don't follow the agricultural groups probably quite as intensely as, you know, what a farmer and rancher does. Um, Monday was brutal. I mean, if you... If you were any type of producer and you saw the markets or watched the markets after the report, it was just, you know, your heart just sinks. Um, but they're making a little bit of a rally back here, I guess, towards the end of the week, a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I think if I'm trying to put my positivity hat on, um, one benefit is that I've really learned a lot about what goes into the risk report and where all those numbers are from and how it's calculated, um, which I guess I probably didn't have quite as good of an understanding of that previously. Yeah. Oh, I, I sure did. And I've been paying a lot more attention to it this year than I ever have in the past. But, you know, the super corn looks like it's up, uh, it was up nine and three quarters and, um, November beans were up nine as well. And you got to remember, we had two days of almost limit down and, and then a third day of uh, about halfway limit down. So there was some significant drop there. We've pretty much given up all the, all, all the, although we made during the uh, the rally during the weather market that we saw here earlier this year, still think we're going to see some react. You know, this, this week we have, next week, I'm sorry, I think it's next week, the uh, Pro Farmer Crop Tour. Uh, starts and that's going to I think it's going to shed a light on some stuff that we haven't seen out there I mean there's going to be a lot of things that pop up when they start talking about 
acres planted and what they're actually planted with and where they're at in the growing stage and, and what they project for yields to be uh, and those kind of things. So I'm really looking forward to see what that report looks like next week. So, um, yep. All right. Aaron. When's the semi-pro farmer tour? That'll be... That's not till the fall. It's not till the fall. Oh, okay. It kind of it kind of correlates with uh, some arena ball kind of falls into place for that, but much that <laughs> summer league, summer league, yeah. Kind of like the uh, yeah. NFL Europe, Europe, Canadian football league, NBA D league. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, let's talk about a little bit of uh. Let's talk a little equipment talk. We are in a... Uh, I don't know anything either. But if you take a look at what's going on right now, there's a lot of things happening, a lot of a lot of movement in the market. Barring what we've seen happen this week, usually we see a big drop like this. You see some level of uh, kind of pullback or some apprehension take place. I haven't felt that. I believe it's, called, I believe it's called utter panic. Well, that's true. But I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Not necessarily drawback. It's called utter panic. I don't think that a lot of guys. Um, I don't. I don't feel that pressure. Do you? No, I don't. Honestly, you know, I spend a lot of time. Let's be honest. Too much time on Ag Twitter, and there, most of those guys, you know, are like, yeah, reports suck, but it is. They were doing their homework, and, you know, when it was, God, I hate to even use the word good, earlier, far better earlier, you know, a lot of guys did their due diligence and, you know, got that into their marketing plan and all that kind of stuff, and and everybody knows that that report can be whatever the hell it wants to be. It's what's in the bin that matters and when... There, when it's all not there, you know, it's it's kind of like sit tight. Just yeah, you can get pissed at USDA and how stupid it is, and all these reports and blah 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 and all that. It's all gonna shake out. I am a firm believer. It's gonna be, and it might be March next year. Very well, might be, you know, but it's the. Once you go by what the hell's actually in the bin, when it's all said and done, I think there's going to be a lot of change. And a lot of guys think that, you know, and that's kind of what they're going off of. And and what they do have, they did some good marketing earlier. I got just as much interest from Monday at noon till right now as I did a week, week or two before. So... You know, it is what it is. Yeah. Now, you're right. There, there are a lot of guys that, that took advantage of that uh, that that swing there where they could market some corn in that, and, you know, cash price in that $4 to 425 range, you know. Opportunities. Yep. That's, uh, that's a site they haven't seen in quite a while. So, I think you're right. A lot of guys did jump on that. And I hope most guys did because it was – it's kind of a short-lived thing, but it was it's one of those things where I think there's an opportunity that guys took, and, and I think they locked in some. They might not have locked in profit, but they sure locked in um, a break-even. 
Right. So, yeah. You know, when you're, when, how'd you guys handle that? And what was some of the? Did you? Was there a mad mad rush to put out your way, or was there a kind of a we're gonna take a little bit and see if it can break even, and see what the market looks like the rest of the way? What was your? What's your goal? What was your plan? Um. Yeah, we definitely have put in the work to find out where our break-even levels are so that we can sell um, when we know we can, you know, cover our costs for sure. Um, but there's three operators in my family, and getting everybody to say yes is sometimes a challenge, um, right. even when even when the number two makes sense, because, you know, that farmer mentality of, you know, oh, it could always go higher, oh, it could always go higher, um, and it usually kicks you in the shorts. <laughs> Right. But I think um, Tyson and I are both very diligent to um, walk in a profit when we can. Um, and I think maybe part of that is just being young producers and not having, you know, we can't afford to take a risk, I guess, to wait for it to be high because that's just too high of a risk for us at this point, you know, on the farm. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think there was definitely a lot of people that took advantage of, of pricing earlier. Um and like I said, you know, we knew the report was going to be bad. It wasn't like we thought it was going to be some great report, but it's just when it turns out being that bad and everything is down, 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 you know, yeah. it's just not fun to see. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. That's for sure. So, Aaron, the equipment side of the business, what, what's still hot right now? What, what's, the, what's the one thing out there besides combines, obviously, it's that time of the year, but is there something else out there that is uh, really – kind of, uh, I guess, peaking some interest. Oh, man. I guess there's not really one thing that that is like a big gotta-have-it type deal. Um, you know, it's been, other than combines, it's been a little of this, a little of that. Nothing too, nothing too run away. Yeah. I'm a little surprised that Palantum, you know, last time we were, last time I was on the Moving Iron podcast, we were talking about the used planners, you know, guys following suit with the early order program, and that's not really stopped in the last couple of weeks. Um, tractors. Uh, tractors have been kind of quiet too. Um, really, it's just just kind of combines and heads. That's really yeah. about it. Of course, you know, obviously, with with the tweeting the wholesale stuff out there on on uh, Twitter, and you know, naturally, that's been about 99% combine stuff here lately anyway so of course that's where the the bulk of the talk is going to be from but you know guys always send me a message hey I'm looking for this hey I'm looking for that a little bit of other stuff going on nothing's a real runaway but it's definitely also not a uh, like state of panic or anything like that either so it's a a steady trickle here in the last week or so, I would say. Yeah. So, what do you, 
you getting anything on um, any forage harvesters at all? Anybody jump talk to you about that at all? Anybody perking their ears up on that? Yes, there has been guys. Um, they're they're not. I'm assuming you're asking that in regard to like prevent plant guys that are got a bunch of silage or something. But no, I just the guy that I've talked to. <laughs> I mean, huh? the dairy price is kind of back and forth. I mean, it's, it's kind of hovering around. I mean, it's not necessarily great by any means, but there seems to be a little more pressure out there on on just getting silage, you know, cut and those kind of things. So I don't know if maybe there was a a bit of a, you know, rise in, in what you see guys talking to you about forge harvesters. Now, I've had a couple guys call, um... The only guys I've really talked to on forage harvesters lately are, I think there's three of them. They are all kind of smaller feedlot type deal. They don't do any custom. They just kind of do their own. Right. And they got some pretty old, pretty old choppers um, looking to update to 50 series type of deal. Right. Um, I should say seven thousand fifty, and they got one guy's got a had like a sixty eight fifty, and another guy's got like a sixty nine ten, and you know they're just pretty much see through at this point. <laughs> so yeah. it's that's that's kind of where the chopper discussion has been. You know, nobody with with uh, oh like seventy seven or a seventy nine eighty that's wanting the. 9900 or nothing like that so right choppers are choppers are just they they just got to be honest they suck in the equipment business and there's a lot of dealers got a dealer buddy they they love choppers you know they love it and you've been in chopper world before and there's dealers that can make it work, but if you're not it, with choppers, it's not something you flirt with. No, it's you got to be you're all the way out. The yeah. bread and butter, the meat, the cheese, the chips, the paper plate, the napkin. It's got to be the whole damn thing, <laughs> or 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 don't even don't even look at one. Stick to thirty nine seventy five pull type. Right. Yeah, either you're all the way in or you're all the way out. There's no there's no middle ground. Right. And all the way out is a great place to be. Unless you be all the way in. And then, then you still would rather be all the way out. Unless your parts counter. And your parts counter loves you being all the way in. That's that's damn sure. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right, Gina. What else is on your mind? Oh well, you know we were talking about USDA and Twitter and. I think uh, Mr. Donald Trump is going to be on a lot of people's uh, naughty list this year for some of his tweets. Um, particularly this week, he said something about the wheat market and how Japan, Japan, uh, we're going to stop ex- importing cars from Japan because they don't import our wheat. And that statement is so far from the truth, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, you know, because Japan is a huge importer of U.S. beef, and you know we still need them definitely to buy our products. Um, 
I don't know. I think I'm, everybody's just getting frustrated because it seems like he kind of says things and you wonder where in the world is he getting his information from and if somebody's feeding him this false information, where the heck are they getting their information from, you know? I right. think um, there's a lot of people that are going to be leaning on their commodity boards or their advocacy groups even more to try and reach him. But quite honestly, at this point, I don't know what else you can do to try and talk to him. It doesn't seem like anybody can really control what comes out of that man's Twitter. So. Nope. Now it's a... Uh, that, that one's been a burr in my side this week. Yeah, that, that Twitter account of his... Uh, sometimes you kind of have to shake your head a little bit. Yeah. Just... You, you, you can tell that nobody is... Uh, is policing what comes on that Twitter, I can tell you that. Great. I mean, I'm all for, like, free speech, and I, you know, I've been a huge supporter of that, you know, he doesn't back down from anything, but, gosh, it's frustrating when you see him say something that is, you know, not exactly true, so. <laughs> yeah, no, that's... Kind of frustrating from the, the producer side. Yeah, no, I, I can Just hop that. on the truck train and let her roll. <laughs> right on. All right, Gina. Why don't you talk about? You did an interview this week with Team SI. Why don't you explain what that is, who they are, and, and what your interview was about? Yeah. So Team SI is um, a digital marketing company. Uh, they're based out of Little Rock, Arkansas, and we work with them actually uh, through Twenty First Century Equipment. Um, that's how I've gotten to know them. They're a great group of people. Um, and their bread and butter is websites and digital display ads, retargeting ads. Um, I had a meeting here with them recently and was able to sit down with their CEO, Tim Whitley. And um, if you've ever gotten a chance to meet Tim, he is a super great guy, super analytical, and, you know, just really down to earth. And he truly has a passion for helping um, helping dealers grow and helping you be successful. Um, so he sat down with me this week and we talked about some things that are on the digital forefront that are coming down the pipeline and just a few different ways that you can market to your customers. Um, and we also kind of discussed a little bit of a, the customer journey and um, kind of how to deal with some of these customers that maybe equipment dealerships have never dealt with before and um, what that journey kind of looks for that cu- looks like for that customer um, as they go through the digital um, portfolio all the way to the store. So um, it was good to talk with Tim and I'm just really glad he uh, came out to see us. Well, now I'm looking forward to hearing that. That's uh, Team SI has got a lot of good stuff going and I, they, uh, Pretty innovative company. They got a lot of a lot of great things going. So, Aaron, what do you got in your mind before we shut it down? Well, very little. Everyone knows that. That's a given. But I thought maybe this time you <laughs> Funny guy got jokes. Um, team outside is also referred to as Team Spanish. Yes. <laughs> Just like to point that out real quick. No, I got nothing. Just another day. Another nickel, just keeping after the machinery business, the sheep farm. And it's about football season. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. pretty wound up for that. Yeah, yeah every, I'm about to whip up on both you guys in fantasy football again this year. Wait, are you going to be the commissioner? Uh, 
That sounds like we need a commissioner. Oh. I thought yeah. that was going to be Casey Seymour. Oh, not going to be Casey Seymour. You you would make a really good Roger Goodell, Casey. You have the same <laughs> the same amount of prick in you. I'll just go ahead and say it. So yeah, you'd, you'd be a really good Roger Goodell. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that, Aaron. Thank you. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. I just wanted to put put a little bit of ray of sunshine on your day. Well, that's great. Appreciate that. No, I'm pretty excited for that. Broncos are a lock for the Super Bowl. And yeah. There's there's two games they got to win every year. As long as they win those two, I honestly don't care a lot about the record. So. Yeah, so are the uh, Detroit Lions. So, yeah, it's going to be great. Great season. That would be good. That'd be really good. A lot of blue. They brought back Barry Sanders, so they're gonna they're gonna win. They're gonna win now. Yep. You know, honestly, the Lions should be pretty good. On paper, they're fantastic. Oh yeah. As long as they can get out of their own way, they'll be fine. You know, I've talked to plenty of Nebraska fans out there that say that uh, Nebraska is going to go. Uh, what I hear is someone's gonna gonna win the Big Ten this year, and then if not, if they don't win the Big Ten, they're gonna be like in the top three. Okay, sounds great. Hey, do you know do you know who's more batshit crazy than a Husker fan? Colorado Buffalo fan. Not a single human being. That's who. Not right. one human no. being on earth oh, is more insane on. than a Husker fan. I did not say anything about them winning any games this year. So that did not oh, come for me. Not but I think they're going to be better. I will say I think they're, they're going to be better. Shit, I hope. Can't get any worse. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> yeah, the, the frost, the, the whole frost warning, that worked out real nice. Good job, guys. Hey, at least our coach is good to look at. All I gotta say. <laughs> oh, I'm so tired of hearing that too. I'd rather look at Mike Leach. He's a handsome devil. Oh. Or M- Bill Snyder. I don't know about no. that. I care about that. <laughs> the thing about Mike Leach is he'll lock you in a locker, man. He don't. He don't care. Yeah. That's right. Or Jason Brown. Thank you for coming here to Captain Juco here on the podcast. Jason Brown. Yeah, there you go. Did you get, I mean, he's, he's, he's a different kind of coach. Let's put it that way, I guess. Let's be the best man. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I like that kind of coach. I'm not the – I would not be – I could never play for, like, Tony Dungy. You yeah, know you what I mean? Play for, like, well, yeah. That's like, like a Bill Snyder kind of coach. Huh? That's like a Bill Snyder kind of coach. No, Snyder will, will chew you in half without saying a word. Well, so with Dungey, I've watched him do it. No, no, Dungey, Dungey was just like, like, it's fine. We'll get some pizzas. It'll be okay. Like he, he'd be a great modern day little kid sports coach. Everybody gets a ribbon. I don't think that's true. You don't win Super Bowls with that kind of mentality. Well, you don't win Super Bowls without Peyton. So there's that. Uh, you also have to have a. Uh, another ten guys around you that can play. So, kind of works. Well, and you know, you know who wins the Super Bowl is what the hell's his name? That dude that was his offensive coordinator forever. He's like a hundred and six. 
Tom something. He's the brains behind that whole thing. Anyway. Oh, I know you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's Tom something, right? I think that's right. Yeah. He always has his glasses on the end of his nose. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That dude's that dude's wicked smart. Yes, he is. Outstanding. Come right on. All right. Well, stay tuned for Regina Nardis' interview with Team SI, and I will have Sean Hackett on here uh, directly to talk about all the uh, stuff that happened this week in the market. So, all right. So, until next time, I am Casey Seymour. Regina Nardis. I'm Aaron Fennell. Thanks for listening to the podcast, folks. Moving Iron. So this is Moving Iron Podcast with Tim Whitley of Team SI. So, Tim, it's been a while since I've seen you. So what's been going on in your world? Oh, a lot of things. I mean, from changing, you know, with at Team SI, we're switching to a new website platform and uh, to drive more leads to dealers, of course. And then just honestly, just going through all the data from 2019 as it has showed us a, a big increase of certain things. So it's been very busy this year. Yeah. I think overall, it seems like um, the ag industry is paying a lot more attention to that digital platform. So um, what have you been noticing in trends as far as some of the digital customer journey yeah, I mean, there's definitely one uh, customer journey. Number two, it's a complex customer journey, and number three, it's a shorter sell than what we thought last year. So, kind of breaking that down is that in 2019 we saw a lot of people for let's just say small lag searching a lot more than what the market is growing at. And when I say a lot more, like probably 10 times more than what the market's growing at on a percentage basis year over year. And these shoppers are very serious when they're shopping and they're not, they're not just going to, you know, um, uh, a green website and then a red website and then an orange website. They're also looking at reviews on social media to say, to figure out in groups of, you know, what should I buy? And they'll post a message and, the orange group or the green group. And so the, it's it's become very complex and the customer journey is really starting to form into how people purchase a car and how much research goes into that. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of stuff out there when it comes to the equipment world. So um, is there a sector that you see growing in the online presence? Well, there's a misconception that older people don't use smartphones or don't, no, excuse me, that they don't get on the internet. But what's funny is that we're always on the internet. If you have a smartphone, whether you're an Android fan, an Apple fan, whatever, you have a smartphone. Um, and on that smartphone, you can access the web. And when the older demographic, let's say they're in their cabs and they are, they're farming, they're going back and forth. I mean, I used to do it and I have, I, you have time on your hands. And so you see a lot of multi-usage going from uh, somebody being in the cab again with their smartphone, then researching, hey, I need to look up this part or I need this attachment or 
man, this tractor's AC just went out. How am I going to get that fixed? They are doing a lot of activity on their smartphone. And so some people have a misconception that just because they're not using a keyboard necessarily on a computer that's set up in their office, because that's not where they do business, they do business on the farm. And so um, I think that's a misconception, but I think uh, people are starting to really wrap their heads around it. This year I did notice though, um, that there's a lot of searches that are going on in the pipeline. So an example is if somebody is researching a combine, that person is gonna keep flipping from looking at used combines to new, and then you know they, they may go to different colors, but to the point though that they're going from used to new to used to new to try to make that decision is a pretty important aspect of the customer journey because, I mean, either way you want them to come to you, so you gotta provide the information and really let them compare do I want to buy this new piece of equipment or buy this used piece of equipment? But we do see that sector growing a lot, especially with, I mean, it hasn't been a great year for a lot of states in agriculture business. And so the wallets are tighter. And when the wallets get tight, they are honestly doing more research, just like what we would do. Yeah. So you mentioned something that was kind of struck out there to me that you're seeing people do more research on parts or how to repair something. You know, I think um, in my years in the used equipment business that that's maybe something that we overlook sometimes when it comes to marketing digitally is, you know, we focus so much on selling the piece of equipment that's, you know, in the dealership, we're really good at supporting our customers after the sale, but are we telling that story on the digital platform or in our marketing and advertising campaigns? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I said, um, when I got into this field in uh, 13 or 14 doing what we're doing with team SI, I come from a farming background and I, I was telling everybody that, Hey, you know, my family orders parts on Amazon. We don't want to lose that market share. Well, that is still being done. And, because Google, um, literally the number one search term for a lot of dealers out there are for parts and service. And they don't realize that until they really start looking at their keyword list. And when they find that on the keyword list, it does kind of open up their eyes, but also it opens up their eyes to get a, a message in front of them that says, hey, come to us because Amazon's not the cheapest. Uh, you know, we can offer you a good, better, best, you know, quote on these parts and plus shop local, that kind of thing. But there's definitely a customer journey. And I can tell you from my family's experience, um, you know, we, we on our farm still repair things on um, our farmland. But I think that's an opportunity too to uh, get those people back engaged with dealerships as well. Because again, my uncle is 73, 73, I believe. And he is constantly on his smartphone looking up things, but the smartphone does have text. So that was really huge. Of course, <laughs> you know, like his text messages, like huge, but, um, he's still doing the research right there. And he's going from a tractor house to then to the local dealership and then just doing uh, Google searches for a specific part. I mean, very specific part. And then he'll be looking up something just as a 
the um, uh, straight up Google of you know used combine or whatever that may be, and he's clicking on the first to three links in the organic section. So if people just take a step back and then say, "Oh my gosh, I I do that with when I'm shopping for a truck, or I do that when I'm shopping for a house, or I do that when I'm shopping for a TV," it's the same thing. It's just being done on the smartphone. And I think where the misconception is is that the smartphone's not the internet, but I mean we're always connected to the internet. It never leaves us. So that's that's where that large ag customer journey uh, is focused in on is this smartphone. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that's very true. I mean, you ask somebody if they left their house without their cell phone, most people are going to turn around and drive back, even if they're twenty miles down the road. I did it this morning, actually. <laughs> We, we came down the elevator and, it's, and I was checking my pockets and I was like, oh my gosh, my phone. And I started having a little freak out moment. But mm-hmm. that's just how connected we are these days. Um, I read a statistic. Um, it's like 96% of the time that we're awake, we know where our phone is. Like it's, it's pretty interesting. But yeah, I mean, the phone is the access to the world now. Yeah. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. Absolutely. I think it's definitely an important aspect to not overlook Mm -hmm. and with the phone you know they're they're evolving to where uh like the flip phone may actually come back but it's still a smartphone because i had somebody ask me the other day on a a dealer saying hey i heard the flip phone's coming back and i'm like yes yeah i mean you know because i had a flip phone back in the day but like this one has a screen that actually, you know, combines and it actually shrinks down into two. So it's it's still a smartphone. They're just bending the glass because, you know, they can do that now. I think Samsung's coming out with that. And uh, it's a really cool, cool phone. But honestly, it's just it's it's a smartphone that's going to be way faster and everything else. So technically, yes, the flip phone is coming back, but it's still a smartphone. So. Hmm. But yeah. Interesting. I hadn't heard that yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, so you're saying you never had a bad phone? like? N- actually, we did. And all of our, um, well, no, we transferred it. So we had five or six tractors that were at uh, my grandparents' house. And then we had tractors at other places where we owned land. And um, But we would transfer the bag phone. So yes, I remember the bag phone. And we would transfer each one to to our unit so that we could talk to the other tractor because mm-hmm. we didn't have CVs or whatever. So I do remember the back phone, yes. I remember when I turned 16 and I started driving, that was the big deal that my dad had to pick one of his bag phones out of his trucks yes, <laughs> to be my phone number for <laughs> so that I could have a cell phone, not a bag phone or something yes. like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Hey, and then I remember playing Snake on Nokia's phone. So right. Nokia's phone. So I mean, everybody right. had a Nokia phone. At one point, you were right. <laughs> now they're gone. <laughs> and that's the world of innovation. One day you're here, one day you're not, if you don't keep up with the uh, evolution of where mm-hmm. things are going. so I'm sure there's a few of them in somebody's desk drawer or oh, something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. If I cleaned out the garage, I bet I could find a couple. So... Um, so uh, what are you seeing kind of coming down the pipeline as far as digital and um, what should people that are looking at marketing um, be kind of paying attention to here in the next six to 12 months? Well, I don't, I don't want to give all the secret sauce away, uh, but, you know, I think that um, there there's the sense of urgency and privacy. And so we're going to see that continue where 
um, the privacy sector is going to continue to come into the internet and to, to be able to market to these people. But that doesn't scare me because it's literally um, just protecting the end user, but we're still able to target that end user if they own you know, 100 acres of land or more or if they own only one to five. We can still do that, but you're just not going to know on the level of who the people are, that kind of stuff. So there's one thing, but then uh, the second thing is utilizing first-party data where, um, and first-party data is actually, you know, from the dealership or the manufacturer and being able to what you would think as direct mail, but not direct mail, it is basically flipping their physical address into an IP address and then delivering an ad between Hulu or uh, sports on Amazon Prime or a radio ad on Pandora or display ads on the smartphone. So I think we're going to see that evolution kind of continue to happen. Um, but that's that's finite targeting, and that's 100% legal because it's first-party data. And the privacy, though, is is going to be there where, you know, I'm not going to be able to say, you, Gina, visited this, 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 and did this, this, this. So that's where the privacy comes into play, which I'm all about privacy. You know, I don't want uh, us to ever be that finite. But I, so how we measure success is always just conversions. Hey, did this person call me? Did this person fill out a form? Did this person click on uh, directions to the dealership? Those are the main factors that we always look at with digital. And it's a factor that you weren't able to do with television or traditional media, even though traditional media plays a big role because of awareness. Uh, but, you know, even the ads that you may watch on Hulu or Connected TV, YouTube TV, um, uh, Roku, there's a lot of them out there these days. And when you see an ad, if it's an automotive ad, I mean, we can literally say, hey, you watch that seven and a half times and it took you seeing it seven and a half times to walk onto the lot because, you know, it's all connected via mm -hmm. the smartphone. But I won't be able to say the name of that person. Yeah. That's the privacy portion. Okay. So pretty interesting stuff there. Um, so let's say a company is starting to get into the digital ads and generate leads from their websites and from some of these ads. <clears throat> What would you suggest to a dealer as to how to handle those leads internally and um, maybe some processes that you've seen that have been successful with some other companies? That's a great question. Um, we know that if anyone searches on Google, they are what is called instant gratification. You want the search results to be clean. You want it to be a trusted source when you click on the link and you want the Google to the Google, the Google to go fast, right? You want to fat. It's all about instant gratification. So when they Google something, small compact utility tractor, and they click on the first link, they're most likely going to click back and then click on the second one uh, because, you know, the first one may have not given them enough information. But when they do land on the right piece of information and they want to take that next step from research and knowledge to then I am going to place a call or I'm going to fill out this form or, hey, I saw this on Facebook. I'm going to fill it out there that the same point of them doing instant gratification with Google applies to the dealer. 
if you wait more than a day to call these people back, whether it's a form or just not answering the phone when they call, it's it, the new small compact utility tractor customers want instant gratification. They may actually not give you a second chance because they are going and buying within you know three to five days after they go into the evaluation stage and consideration stage. So back to your point though, gotta answer the phone. That's number one, and provide them the answers, knowledge, and research because they're gonna. They've already read about it, but they're going to kind of test you a little bit. Number two is that if they fill out a form, the absolute, and I'm serious about this, a lot of people usually laugh at me, but the time to call them back is literally about 30 minutes max because their brain is still focused on it. Once your brain moves on to, oh, crud, I got to do something else, you know, at my job or whatever, or my kid's sick, or I got to go pick up the kids from soccer, whatever it may be. It's out of mind, out of sight. And so it's going to be harder to get in touch with them. Um, and so I just say, got to answer those leads within 30 minutes. And that's hard. That's, it's hard to do, mm -hmm. but it's the, it's, it's a fact. And we have all the data to back it up. I just, I know they say it's hard to do it, but that's that's the number one if you want to close more deals. Because marketing can only go so far, right? Yep. So That's interesting. I think a lot of dealers are maybe struggling with that right now. And we have a lot, I mean, for an ag dealership or even, um, you know, one that's in a more metropolitan area, their um, process of selling is changing, you mm -hmm. know, and the it's such a diverse world that these salesmen are starting to deal with. You know, there's, there's a guy who's been doing it for 25 years and, um, you know, has a pretty well stable customer base for, so for him to go back and meet with a new customer, I think that's totally out of his wheelhouse and maybe a little bit difficult for him to switch that switch. Yep. Um, at least that's what I've been seeing, you know, here locally and at other dealers that it's, it's changing the way our sales force is yeah. and it's changing the way we have to train these folks to um, basically converse with the different types of customers and the different types of leads that walk in the door or are given to them via email or mm -hmm. however from a digital app source. So it's going to be, I think we're, you know, as Casey and I talk about it a lot is this paradigm shift that's happening in the equipment world. Um, so it's going to be kind of interesting to see how everybody kind of walks through this. So, you know, even at my mother's dealership when uh, she worked there, now she's retired, but the salespeople and the sales managers, um, they all said, hey, I know my customer base. I know my customer base. They're, they're going to text me or call me if they need a piece of equipment. And then I even had to show those people that I knew and grew up with. Like literally they knew when, me when I was five years old, you know. And showing them the customer journey and, you know, I, I know these people, a one-to-one -one relationship. And it take it took about seven or eight times to show them the real data, the customer journey between, you know, with large ag, there is one, right? And there's one with small ag. And, um, and it, they finally got it. And when they got it, their sales increased 10% over the, you know, for the next following year. So, yeah, but you're right. It's, it's, it's a... It's a total way of thinking differently if you're a salesperson and you 
have that connections, those connections, and you've been working there for 25 years. I know what that's like. I feel that. I mean, I feel it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's a conversation we have often in the dealership and not that the person that's been here for 25 years is doing anything wrong because they're good at their job. Correct. Yeah. It's just, um, either trying to get them to realize that there's a different journey for some different customers or, you know, hiring in somebody that, you know, can be, can, is maybe a little bit more aware of that different customer and how they need to interact with those folks. Yeah. I mean, with, uh, quarter one and quarter two of this year, uh, 2019, uh, somebody's watching later on, but in, uh, I saw the whole customer journey shift again in 2019. And so that's where I was emailing you about, oh my gosh, the, here's the new customer journey. I mean, it's just constantly changing. And so the sales staff to, um, be as profitable as possible. Everybody wants to take home a big check. They just need to be open to change and, and adopt uh, smartphone technology and adopt that. Yeah, my large ad customer is most is going to be on tractorhouse.com. They're going to be on Machine Repeat. They are going to be on Machine Finder. They are going to be on my dealer's website. But they are going to venture out, and and you need to know when they're venturing out. So of course you can get them in the customer journey. But they, I mean, they just are because we have access to twenty four seven information right here in the palm of our hands. So. Um, so that's why I think it's so important that, um, a used equipment dealership or equipment dealership, whatever you are, has a digital partner, because just like you said, it's changed, you know, just the data and the different things that are available have changed in the last six months. And for a company that's also focused on, you know, doing the the used equipment thing or new equipment thing, mm-hmm. it's hard to stay on top of that. So it's I think it's crucial to have a partner, an agency like Team SI. Um, what are some of the key things that you would tell people to how to work with a dig- digital agency or how to hold them accountable to make sure that they're doing um, getting the most bang for their buck? Well, that's a very good point. Um, how we measure everything is we got to generate leads for the dealership. Anyone can generate a ton of website traffic. You know, that's not hard. You can, you can send bots out and, and generate website traffic. And I've, I've seen a dealer uh, actually have a bad experience with that. At the end of the day, if we're not generating leads, which is called a phone call or a form fill, then are we really giving you ROI or is that, is that fulfilling your needs? I mean, we, we have to do that. So if your digital partner can't track that, they're definitely not the right partner, right? And so you just got to find somebody to track those leads and make sure they are uh, reliable. So when we do track the leads, um, we make sure we listen into the phone calls and listen and make sure they are actually qualified leads too. So just because you have a big spreadsheet and the agency says, or the firm says, Hey, I generated 900 leads for you. Well, if those leads were a third of them, which could happen, a third of them could be, you know, Oh, I, uh, I dialed the wrong number or oops, I accidentally clicked on this ad or, Oh, I meant to get to this dealership, whatever it may be. You, you got to uh, be comfortable of listening to those calls and then also seeing if they're legitimate because anybody can also generate 
a ton of coals too. So you need to be careful of those two things. Well, we've been at this for for a while now. So uh, <laughs> any other last uh, words of wisdom or tidbits that you want to talk about or, or how can people get a hold of you if they want to continue this conversation or look into doing business with Team SI? Well, it's TeamSI.com. So just like a football team and then SI, like sportsillustrated.com. Um, that's where you can reach us in, inside of that atmosphere. The, the thing that um, I'll leave with is this year was so difficult for uh, a lot of people across the United States, whether that was Hurricane Michael or the rains or the dry weather in Texas. I mean, it was just a really awful year in, in large ag personally for me as well. And um, you just want to make sure you find a partner that is actually your partner and that will um, stand by you during the good times and the bad times. And so, and that's what we did with our dealers this year. I mean, it was a lot of work and I lost a lot of hair, um, but, you know, we had to keep up with it because every lead meant something uh, because it was such just a dynamic year. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just, it was just an odd year. So hopefully 2020 We'll be better on the weather factor and, you know, we can all have good crops and large ag will be picking back up, hopefully, and um, the small compact utility will still continue to show growth. That's what I'm hoping for in 2020. But the customer journey, as you said, is going to always change. And so you need somebody looking at that data at least quarterly. You've got to. And train your sales staff. Train your sales staff to, and, and have them understand that customer journey. That's what I'd say. Well, it's been great. So it's always a pleasure. So uh, thank you, ma'am. Yeah, this is Moving Iron Podcast. And we are now part of the Global Ag Network. So if you would like to check them out or some other podcasts available on the Global Ag Network, please do so. Moving Iron. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast Markets with Sean Hackett. Sean, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, Mr. Casey. I just continued to... uh, uh, watch the wild weather going on everywhere with hail and rains and everything else. It's been a, a crazy year, and I think it could still be crazier. So we'll just have to wait and see. Yep. So Sean's with uh, Hacker Financial Advisor. He's on here uh, every every week here, and we, we talk about stuff back and forth. And there's no, no lack of things to talk about this week. So, uh, you know, Monday the 12th, we had the big report come out. Everybody was anticipating uh, coming out, and there were lots of uh, – there are two different camps. One was the nothing's going to change, everything's going to stay the same, we're going to grow the exact same yield we did last year, blah, 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 blah. Then there's another one that came along and said, hey, you know what, there's going to be significantly um, different than what we've seen in the past, and they're going to see a lot of, you know, gross yields are going to be less than what we saw, so on and so forth. Um, so the Planet Acres report came back out, and they more or less redid uh, the August report from what they did in June, and quite frankly, it was a... Uh, they feel, I don't know. I know I know the USDA is doing the job, and I get that. But it seems like to me there was they counted a lot of acres that got planted that were prevent acres. Um, so they took the prevent plant acres off the table and made them planted acres again. And then they showed what the harvested acres were going to be. And I you know I, I guess you can say that if something gets planted, it's going to get harvested in some fashion. But for there to be ten million acres of uh, prevent plant. There's not going to be, or 7 million acres or whatever number they decide to come up with, there's not going to be <clears throat> grain on those acres that got planted late. It's just not going to happen. There's just not enough time in the growing season. So I guess, Sean, talk about what you saw from that report and then the, the complete backlash that we saw 
the following, you know, that, that day, the next day, and then and into Wednesday, and we've seen a bounce back here today. But, um, man, it seems like there's a uh, this kind of a whirlwind there of maybe a knee-jerk reaction to some extent or maybe uh, uh, just lack of a better term, not quite understanding what was got, what the report actually said. Well, we had been on record saying that we didn't think the USDA would change things that much. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at the methodology that they said they were going to follow, we just didn't see how they were going to make huge adjustments. And they didn't. Um, and, and, and because um, apparently the market expected they would, um, you know, we got the limit down move um, on that day. Um, but when we really think it through, we really think this through. The way we look at it is this. Um, you can plant all the acres you want, um, but how many you're going to harvest? And they used a normal discount harvest from planted acres to harvested acres that you would see in a normal year, roughly 9 or 10%. It was garden variety. Uh, how is that possible that, A, that's po- in a year like this that we would see a normal uh you know, discount from planted acres to harvested acres in a year that we had so many acres not planted. It doesn't seem that that, that you, it would seem that you would need a larger discount uh, than, than, than the norm, which they did, they did not do. So we're question, we question the harvested acre significantly. Uh, having said that, if you do believe the USDA, and, and, it, and if you say that all those acres did get planted and that we're going to have a normal uh, harvested acre discount, those acres or a huge amount of those acres were planted after June 1st, which makes it almost virtually inherently impossible that you could have a yield of 169. Meaning that that if you if you look at the kind of yield you would be looking at planting corn on June 15th or corn on June 8th or some corn that was planted on June 20th. Um, it, it, so either the acres are way wrong or the yield is way, way wrong or both are way wrong, but you can't have one versus the other in our view. So when we look back, uh, Casey, in 1993, for example, the USDA in their August report were 13 bushel to acre too high in their August report. You remember, we've talked about this analog this 1993 analog before, that we were likely to follow this analog. And the market got crushed in 1993, in August, when they came out with this very large yield number that everyone couldn't believe. And then when we actually got the, 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 the truth, we had to come down 13 bushels from their August yield expectation to get to the right number. And the market absolutely exploded higher and actually made new highs at the end of the fourth quarter from what we had made at the end of June, July. We think we are set up for a very, very similar situation where the USDA is doing what they always do. They come up with this make-believe number in August. Right. It believes it. And then when the truth comes out, it's 13, 10. Even in 1995, they were 10 bushel to the acre, which is another late-planted year, another late-developing year. They were 10 bushel to the acre, too high in the month of August in their yield report. So based upon their history, there's absolutely no one who should believe this 169 yield at all. I mean, you should, you should just kind of just, 
it's amazing that the market actually reacts to such information the way that knowing their history with late planted crops. Nonetheless, having said that, that's what markets do. But we feel you know, that we're setting up for an August low, like we've been saying for quite some time, like 1993. And we think that as we move along, we start getting actual harvest results from the field and some other, what I would call, more serious agronomic uh, you know, yield forecasts start coming out that show that maybe things are not quite as rosy as the USDA has said, that we're going to get you know, a, a much different reaction to the market. And, and it was today that day, it's hard to say, uh, Casey, because you know, when you get hit as hard as we did, you can have it bounce. It doesn't mean anything. But, but we think before the end of August comes about, we're going to start turning this market back up, and we would be cautioning anyone who was wildly bullish before to be too wildly bearish now. We think they're on the wrong side of the market if they're being too bearish now. We're pretty optimistic that we're heading into a very, very good period of time again. Uh, maybe not quite there yet, but we think we're getting pretty close based upon uh, what took place this year and the history of the USDA completely fumbling the ball in their office report. So. Yeah. So that's it. Next week starts the Pro Farmer Tour, correct? Correct. Okay, so there I drove across all of Nebraska, all of Iowa, and half of Illinois, and obviously looked at the corn. But I was really paying attention to soybeans, and for the time of year that the soybeans were there, that would have been the end of July, right? Yeah, end of July. And now you can still look down the road and still see dirt. You can still and that that was anywhere I went. It didn't really matter where it was. The soybeans were. It's like everybody planted the soybeans at the exact same hour and the exact same day because they're all about the same height. So I guess talk about soybeans a little bit. That seems to be the one that, that people have kind of not forgotten about, but it's just not on the radar as much as corn is right now. Well, you know, we're, we're big number crunchers, Casey. We, we're rec- we like to look at numbers. We like to calculate numbers throughout history, and we try to translate that into today. L- delayed planting crops throughout history have been more, meaning the corn market has had a much greater yield problem than soybeans historically. Understand, we've never had a year like this. I mean, this 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 has never been seen before. We've had years sort of like it, but I think with the, with the why the market is sort of not focused on the soybean yield, because when we look back at delayed planting, late maturing uh, crops before, it's been down, but the corn market's been down way, way more. And I, so that's why I think the market is kind of not taking the, the bean situation as seriously maybe as, as maybe they should. And I'm not sure, you know, I don't have any data point that tells you that we should be down more than 5% in soybean yields based upon a late planted crop. Having said that, I, I, we've never had a year like this. So, so I, I'm on the fence with that. But what I will say, if you do believe the USDA acreage number, uh, if it's, if it's that low, uh, or, or if you look at the history of August uh, acreage reports for soybeans, they usually drop another million. Um, I don't care what yield you want to put on the soybean market. That kind of, a, of an acreage and, and harvested number is going to shrink soybean stocks, even if the Chinese don't buy, you know, in half. Right. So that basis alone says that the, the market has kind of gone to sleep a little bit on the soybeans. And that's probably a big up. But if for some reason the yields were to come up, you know, much more draconian than they have in the past, you know, then we have, we could, of course, if a frost were to take place, 
Casey, it's far more detrimental to soybeans than it would be to corn historically. So, so there's a lot of reasons to be wary and not to lose sight of the fact that even though soybeans have a much more bearish fundamental story today, they could have a much more bullish fundamental story, you know, in just 30, 60 days based, based upon the, the, the potential of what could happen. So, you know, we're, we're not bearish soybeans at this point. We are, we are feeling like soybeans have a lot of up in here. And when we look at our smart money indicator, the insiders that trade our markets that we follow closely, as you know, they have been consistently and persistently and remain, you know, pretty bullish to soybean market when they really shouldn't be. And so we look at that and we, that, that tells us to, to kind of take our bearish hat off and be a little more bullishly oriented and be, and be wary of a, of a surprise move here when everyone's not, everyone's thinking the core market can move. And I agree with that, but I think less people think the soybean market can move and we would be more aware and, and be mindful of that. So, yeah. All right. So there's plenty of stuff that's going on in other marketplaces too. So you take, like we talked about cotton on here, when you're on here, we talk about cotton quite a bit. Um, and I like to talk about cotton because it is tied directly to the overall economy of the world, not, not just necessarily uh a food crop, right? So I, I I can't listen to Bloomberg or MSNBC or any of those, uh, Fox Business, any of those right there without them talking about, you know, how we just missed the recession or the recession is starting to maybe creep in a little faster than they thought and the Fed's reduction of a quarter point um, may have to happen again in order to, to keep ahead of this, this oncoming recession that they have. It's like they're like one or two steps ahead of this reception of this recession every day. So talk about cotton and what you see happening. I mean, there's a lot of things going on in the weather market too. When you start looking at extreme Southeast Asia and India and, and other key growing areas of cotton in the world. Unfortunately, the weather has taken a back seat to the escalation of the trade war because we sell so many of our, of our cotton supplies to the Chinese, and because they stated they were not going to buy any of our ag products, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but they said they were not. Um, you know, the, the cotton market has been has been trading every tweet that comes out. So then all of a sudden, President Trump says today that he has a call scheduled with Z at some point, and they had a call, Pompeo met, things went better, and all of a sudden the cotton market rallies two or three points just for no reason. It, unfortunately, right now, we are tied to trade war sentiment. Uh, that eventually will end. Um, we do know that uh, Europe uh, economically is, is barring on recession. We, the banking, in, if you look at the banking index, it's at 2008, you know, at, the, at the financial crisis lows of 2008, the Japanese banking sector is at 2008 financial lows. Um, so, so we do have some problems globally with it, with the economy. Uh, if you look at the manufacturing, the PMI for uh, China, they're in a manufacturing recession, not a recession overall because of service sector. Who knows exactly if, what numbers are correct? But the bottom line is that we do have some economically challenging situations right now, and and the U.S. is slowing. It's grinding down because you eventually, if the whole world's going down, even the U.S. can't avoid that forever. Right. Eventually, you have to, you know, we have to give in to that. So, so, so cotton is stuck in all of that scenario. And I think, and, and I guess what I, where we come from on this is 
the market quickly prices in these kinds of things. I mean, it's, it's not like this is a secret to anybody. I mean, we, I don't think it's a secret to you. It's a secret. I mean, most people know that. So I think we think most of this is priced in. When cotton got down to 57, 58 cents, you know, we think most of that bearishness got priced in. What we think is not priced in the fact that we have continued to have significant weather problems in the U.S. with hot, dry weather in West Texas, uh, continued problems in in, uh, in, in in India, and and we had this um, crazy typhoon that entered the, uh, the, the Chinese uh, grain areas, but also some of the important cotton areas that just flooded the areas when bowls were open. I mean, there's a lot of weather reasons that have not been priced in. So when we look at most of the bearish economic news priced in and the trade were priced in, but almost nothing of the weather market priced in. And our insider smart money indicator is bullish. I mean, we're actually in a buy signal based upon historical precedent over the last 40 years. That tells us that we're more interested in looking at upside surprises than downside prices at this point, despite all the bearishness. And, and just look at what happened just in the last 24 to 40, uh, you know, 36 hours, we rallied three points off the bottom, just like that. So we're really just, we, we just don't think this is a place to sell cotton. We do not think, uh, you know, that we think we're going a lot lower. We think that if you're in the business of buying cotton, that one should look at this negative period, this negative sentiment, and should be buying. I mean, the whole idea of buying at a good price is when everyone's bearish and they've got it wrong, you want to be a buyer. Uh, and we think we're at that point right now. And so despite the fact that there's, there's very little reason to think why you should be doing it, our experience says we would be a buyer of cotton right now. So, yeah. Okay, so um, last week, I believe I got an email from you that was talking about some leading indicators that of the weather that showed there could be a possibility for some early frost action uh, mid-September, late in late September. Um, I listened to that. 12 minutes, uh, 12, 15 minutes, something like that. Very good stuff. Very well articulated. Good information there. Talk about those leading indicators and, and what that stuff means and how that has an effect on on the flow of Arctic air. Well, there's, uh, there's many variables that determine whether cold Arctic Canadian air comes down into the U.S. or not. And it has to do with upper-level pressure differentials you know i don't want to get complicated about what they are other than when they're when they uh, when some of these variables are in what we call negative phase they tend to drive they tend to spin air in to the middle of the country which is of course where most of our grain is is growing and so what we did is we said we went back and we looked at different <coughs> variables one was the arctic oscillation a negative phase one was the Eastern Pacific Oscillation, the negative phase, and what was the Western Pacific Oscillation, which was in a negative phase. And we said, in the month of September, whenever we've had any one of these conditions in place, what, has been, what happened to temperatures relative to normal in the key corn soybean regions uh, that we care about? And what we found is that all three of them had a high correlation to lower than normal uh, temperatures during the days of September. When we look at the models right now, and of course the models are always changing, but we, we monitor, but as of right now, two of the three are negative in middle of September, and three of three are in place 
in the third to fourth week of September. That means that this is a period where we would expect a higher order probability that cold air is going to infiltrate into the Midwest and potentially cause some frost damage or some serious frost damage at a time when our crop is you know, obviously way behind for so soybean and, and corn. Um, and as you know, Casey, we also looked at some bigger factors like grand solar cycle minimum, 11-year solar cycle trough, and the 18.6-year lunar cycle, which also had high correlations to cold through the normal September timeframe. So when we put all this together, uh, it suggests that this year we have the probably the highest probability of an early frost impacting a late developing crop. It's very hard to get all these factors together simultaneously at the same time. I mean, we haven't had this situation in decades, but we do have it in place today, and that means that we should be on very high alert for this to happen. And as you know, given the precariousness of where we are with yields and acreage and, and all that sort of thing, any kind of a killing frost you know, would set this market, I don't care what demand is, you know, this would set this market off into a, uh, a very unusual situation. And so we view the current correction and the current uh, uh, bearishness as an opportunity to kind of prepare yourself or at least uh, protect yourself against that potential risk. Because in most years, uh, Casey, you know, nine times out of 10, 99 years out of 100, you're not going to have a late developing crop that's going to be effect, impacted by frost, early frost. But this is one of those years that you cannot, in our view, ignore such a probability. And if it does happen, <laughs> what we just saw on the downside mm -hmm. to be equaled or exceeded on the upside. And, and one should not lose sight of the yin and yang that can happen in our markets with, with the kind of weather volatility that we're looking at. Yeah. So. If folks wanted to find that, that video, is that on YouTube or someplace like that where they can see that? The best way, yeah, yes, it's on YouTube. If they do a search, Casey, in YouTube, they go, Sean Hackett Frost Risk. If you put that into YouTube, uh, into Google, it, our, our YouTube will pop right up okay. with, the, uh, uh, with the podcast video that they can just click on. It, it's, it's a public podcast. We put it out for anyone to watch. We just felt it was that important. We didn't want to seclude that from everyone to, to look at it so they could do that by doing by going there so but, um, yeah guys definitely check that out i watched that this morning and it was a uh, very interesting stuff had, had a lot of great information I, I would encourage everyone to check that out so well sean great conversation as usual um really really enjoyed it so uh, if folks want to reach out to you get some information from you what's the best way for them to do that uh our website is hackett at h-a-c-k-e-t-t advisors.com you know, like I said, we have a lot of uh, different podcasts and uh, webinars and sample reports that they can see what we do, and um, and hopefully they, uh, you know, they 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 view our they they view us as being a value provider of information that can help them do a better job at marketing their crops. So, right well, Sean, I appreciate it. And uh, if you guys go back and listen to the podcasts I've had Sean on, the stuff that we've talked about, he's he's not been wrong very often. So. So pay attention to what he's got to say and, and go check out that, that YouTube video. So, well, Sean, appreciate you being on. We'll talk to you again next time.
Sounds great. Thank you so much, Mr. Casey. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast, now part of the Global Ag Network. If you'd like to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com. You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel and watch Market Roundup with Chip Nellinger, Sean Hackett, and Angie Setzer. Also, Tax Moves with Glenn Birnbaum. Please visit movingironllc.com. Here you can find information, details, and updates for the 2019 Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, Tennessee. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, and globalagnetwork.com. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out. Yeah.